Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 this morning. We are going to look at Ezekiel 33 and Luke 13, uh, two passages which open up to us uh, movingly and marvelously uh, God's heart. Uh, Before we read these verses, let's uh, pray and ask for his help. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of prayer that we engaged in a moment ago, and we marvel at the fact that, um, in a real sense, the prayers of your people, the prayers of Trinity Presbyterian Church, are a key part of the unfolding of your purposes in this world. And we thank you for the ministry of the word, this ordinary thing um, from our perspective as we gather together to listen and sit under the teaching and preaching of your word. But we know it is anything but ordinary for this is the primary way that you call people out of darkness into light, out of death and into life in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit this time to you, and I, I pray that we would hear the voice of the living God speaking to each one of us personally today, and that we would hear your word in faith and respond with obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 13, beginning in verse 31. Let's hear God's word. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, Your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to not have the Bible. You had no knowledge of what the Bible teaches. We would know that God exists because God has revealed himself and the things he has made and he has given us an awareness of his existence we would know certain things about God but we wouldn't we wouldn't know what God is like at least as fully as God wants us to we would always be speculating and guessing and surmising and feeling our way around in a perpetual fog But God has given us the Bible, what what Peter, the Apostle Peter, calls a more sure word. God has spoken to us, 
And in speaking to us, he has revealed something of his own mind and heart to us. So what what does God want us to know about himself? He's told us many things. He's told us that he's good and great. He's told us that he's just and holy. He's told us that he's all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful and unchanging and unending without beginning or end. But there's something else that God wants us to know about himself. And it's something that he has made clear in the Old and New Testaments. The Bible speaks with one unified voice. He wants everyone everywhere to know this about him, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires that the wicked would turn to him and live. Why will you die, the Lord asks the people of Israel, when I have set before you a way of life? Why will you choose death? Turn, turn from your wicked ways and live, the Lord says. And in Luke 13, we, we learn a similar lesson about God from incarnate God, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. That statement from our Lord Jesus is, is, is bookended by two emphatic phrases that we need to hear side by side. I, how often I would, I would, but you would not. The reason for your not coming to me does not lie with me, it lies with you, Jesus is saying. And so I want us to briefly look at these two passages, Ezekiel 33 and Luke 13, side by side. And I want us to ask this morning, what does God want us to know about himself today? What does God want us to take to heart from what he reveals about himself in these verses? And how should what we learn about God here impact and, and influence our own lives? Let's begin with Ezekiel 33, God's Old Covenant Church. God's Old Covenant Church had been living in covenant disobedience and open, unrepentant rebellion against the Lord for some time now. Back in Deuteronomy 28, before the Lord led his people into the promised land, he, he said to them that on this day I set before you Life and death. A way of life and a way of death. And if you choose to live in willful disobedience, if you prove faithless to me, the day will come when I will respond to that willful faithlessness and I will uproot you from the land into which I am leading you and cast you into exile. And that is the context of Ezekiel 33, God's promise to bring righteous judgment upon his people. And judgment is 
galloping towards Jerusalem and towards the people of Judah. And that judgment, no one could say that it was coming unexpectedly because God had set a watchman over the city of Jerusalem. Ancient cities were susceptible to attack at any given time. So one of the most important civic jobs someone could have was that of a watchman, someone who would be placed at a high vantage point and was able to look out over the countryside to see if there was danger coming. And the, the lives of the people of the city really depended upon the faithfulness and the vigilance of the watchman. Because the timeliness of his alarm is what gave the people enough time to flee into the city and get behind the walls and the gates for refuge. And the watchman in Ezekiel 33 that we read about a moment ago is a spiritual watchman. But the focus of these verses, at least for today, I don't want us to think so much about the responsibility of the watchman to sound the trumpet of alarm. Because the emphasis in Ezekiel 33 is more so upon the people's response to the alarms of the watchman. Ezekiel 33 says that the watchman has a responsibility to be faithful to his, his role. But the people have a responsibility as well to respond to the trumpet sounded by the watchman. And Ezekiel was Jerusalem's watchman. He, he had been sounding the trumpet, warning of God's judgment for sin and, and rebellion. And, and some were to the point where after hearing Ezekiel, they were, they were in a place of despair. At least that's what verse 10 indicates. Verse 10 says, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? different ways of understanding those words, but it seems like they are, are saying and, and asking, you know, have, have our sins finally caught up to us? Has, has God given up on us? Has God washed his hands of us and said, enough is enough, I am done with you? And the Lord tells Ezekiel to say to them, to those who are tempted to despair of any hope at all, as I declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Know this about me, God is saying. Hear this loud and clear. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take pleasure in the salvation of the wicked. God is saying to them that if you die in your sin... It will not be because I have given up on you, but because you would not come to me. As I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure 
in the death of anyone. You see, it's, it's, we need to not only hear the words, but we need to reflect upon the fact that this is, this is the Lord himself who's speaking here. It is, it is God saying to the people of his old covenant church, turn back, turn back, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is God himself personally and passionately pleading with wayward, covenantally presumptuous, disobedient sinners. Arrogant men and women, stiff-necked men and women, and he's pleading with them to turn from their wicked ways and live. The, The language is, it is remarkable when you think about it. The sovereign Lord, Ezekiel refers to God that way 217 times in Ezekiel. The sovereign Lord is personally and passionately pleading with people to turn and live. I wonder if you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul speaks about his calling as an ambassador for Christ and he says these words, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you, be reconciled to God. Do you hear what Paul said? God making his appeal through us. So here is God in this passage, personally pleading with people saying, no, you need not die in your sin. I have set before you a way of life. You need not face the future without hope and without God, for I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Why will you die? Why will you die when there is a way of life set before you? So we need to hear from Ezekiel this simple but profound truth. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes pleasure in the salvation of the wicked. And this was already stated twice Earlier in Ezekiel, back in chapter 18, and first in verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And a few verses later in 18.23, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So this is God's universal desire for all sinners. This is is God's universal desire for all people that they would turn from sin and live. That they would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. God does not delight in the death of anyone, Ezekiel says. So turn and live. And with that in the background, I want to go to Luke chapter 13, where we hear our Lord Jesus Christ saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus Jesus knew Jerusalem well. He had He had been there many times as a young boy, at least 
three times a year, I would think, for the great festivals. He knew the history of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. That's, that's Jesus' summary of the history of Jerusalem, a people that murders God's messengers. That's what God's old covenant church was doing. Jesus knew the wickedness of Jerusalem. He knew all about the hard-hearted legalism of the Pharisees and the cold, cool rationalism of the Sadducees. And, and he knew that the people of that city would be instrumental not too long from now in demanding his death as he's handed over and eventually crucified. And what does Jesus say regarding such a city? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself. Hey, the picture is the graphic, isn't it? It's, it's underlined again later in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus is getting closer to the city of Jerusalem. He's approaching the city and he looks upon the city and he weeps. He weeps with, with tears in his eyes, with his body convulsing. He, pray, he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And friends, what, what, is, what is Jesus' emotive response to a city that refused him? To individuals who actually wanted to see him dead? To Jesus, was his, his gut response, well, you'll get what's coming to you? No, Jesus wept. Jesus wept when he saw people heading for death and judgment to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he, he weeps over the pe people of Jerusalem. So come back to the question, what do these two passages teach us about God? What, what, is it, what does he want us to learn about himself from Ezekiel 33 and Luke chapter 13. Jesus is speaking as incarnate deity, as the, the God-man, the Lord come to save. Jesus is reflecting something of the sorrow of God himself at the sight of people marching into a lost eternity. So what can we learn here about God and and what also should we learn about how these passages should shape and influence us as God's people? There are four things that I want us to reflect upon briefly this morning. The first thing I want to say, say to you is this, that God personally desires your salvation. God personally desires your salvation. He does not want a single one of you here today to die in your sin. He wants every single one of you to turn from your sin and live. And that means that if you go to the place of the gnashing of teeth, you go in defiance of the sincere invitation of God. If you go to hell, 
you go trampling upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to hell, you go in defiance of the sincere invitation of God in the gospel and in defiance of his sincere desire that you turn and live. You know, I think one of the devil's most sinister sinister and successful strategies is to convince people that God is a hard man. You know, it's, it's, what, it's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? When he tempted Adam and Eve with the tree of the knowledge, through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he, he planted a, a seed of doubt in their, in their minds to question, does, does God really care about your, you? Does, does God really want what's best for you? Or is God withholding things from you? I thought you were a hard man, said the man in the parable. And my friends, nothing could, be, nothing could be further from the truth. He is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is the God who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. And the thing that is going to destroy the blasphemy of the devil, that God is a hard man, more than anything else, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was in obedience to his heavenly father. Jesus willingly came in order to die so that we might live. He he came into the world to bear a covenant curse so that we might enjoy covenant blessing. And so God wants you to know that he sincerely desires your salvation. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he takes great delight in the salvation of wicked sinners. Otherwise, why would he send his only son to bear his wrath and curse? Friends, God wants you to know that he sincerely desires your salvation Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your story, whatever your background, God desires your salvation. The second thing uh, that this truth, I think, teaches us is that we should be humble before God and men. The truth that God sincerely desires the salvation of all people should humble us before God and men. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the Bible could not be clearer that God elects sinners to salvation. It couldn't couldn't be clearer. And yet, the Bible is equally clear that God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, you hear that and maybe you say, but Jared, that that doesn't square up. Those two ideas don't fit together. I, I cannot reconcile those two truths in my mind. How can the fact that God elects some to salvation possibly be squared up with this idea that God sincerely desires the salvation of all people? Friends, I think we have to learn to accept the fact that there are teachings in the Bible 
that we cannot fully comprehend with our finite, limited, and yes, even sinful minds. If you, if you think that you've got this all ironed out and figured out in your mind, let me, let me politely say to you, you have way too high an estimate of your reasoning capacities and abilities. No amount of reasoning can fully comprehend how both of these things, given the revelation that we have uh, at hand, no amount of reasoning can fully comprehend how both of these things can be true and yet both are true. The, the Bible teaches that God elects sinners to salvation and that God desires that all would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in the mind of God, those truths are not in conflict. Um, they, they are not contradictory and one truth does not compromise the other. Uh, you know, do you know the passage? It's a well-known passage in, in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the, the, the revealed things are for us and for our children that we might walk in the way of the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord, dear friends. It is not for us to stand in judgment over God. It's not for us to bring God down to categories that we are comfortable with and that we can handle with ease. The Bible does not present us with a rationalistic, philosophical, neat and tidy religion. The Bible reveals a God who is so great, so incomprehensible, so transcendent, that we can't even begin to begin to begin to wrap our minds around who he is and around his ways. The Bible doesn't try to answer all of our questions. And rather, rather, where, where does it lead us? I think it ought to lead, lead us to be in the same position as the Apostle Paul. As, as he is concluding his, his explanation of the gospel in the book of Romans. And he gets to Romans chapter 11 after he has spoken about all of the blessings of God given to us in Christ. And then he spends time reflecting upon the sovereign grace of God in electing sinners in Christ. And all he can say as he stands back and marvels at, at God's unsearchable riches is, oh, the depth of the the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I've been snorkeling before and I, and, and I have to guess, but I think the, the deepest I went was 20, 25 feet before I started to think I'm, I'm out of my depth here and I need to return to the surface. And Paul is saying that the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God is, is so deep. It's 10,000 by 10,000 feet deep. We can never reach the bottom of it. We only know what's been revealed and even then our puny minds are strained. And therefore one of the, one of the hallmarks of authentic Christian faith is this mark of humility before God that says, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How inscrutable are his ways. His paths are beyond tracing out. See, Paul is confessing after reflecting upon the sovereign grace of God in Christ. 
He's he's saying to the Romans, brothers and sisters, I'm out of my depth here. I I can't fit all of this together. I can only be lost in wonder, love, and praise with this God who does what he does. But you know, some people, some people who can't square up these two truths of God's sovereign election and his sincere desire for the salvation of all people, they end up making one of two objections. They either object to sovereign election or they object to the sincerity of God's free offer in the gospel. Because if election is true, they say, then God cannot sincerely desire the salvation of all people. And if God does sincerely desire the salvation of all people, then the doctrine of election cannot be true. What should we say to that? I'll give you my answer and maybe you have a better one, but I simply say you need to take your beef to Jesus. Uh, Because Jesus believed and actually celebrated the sovereign electing love of his heavenly father. And Jesus offered himself freely to all with out any discrimination. Remember that famous passage in Matthew chapter 11? Jesus, first of all, thanks his father for concealing the truth from those who are wise in their own eyes, those who are, who are proud, and for revealing his truth to children. And then Jesus goes on to say, that the only way anyone comes to know God is if God the Father reveals himself to them through Christ. The only way anyone knows God is if God chooses to reveal himself. And then what does Jesus do next? He stands before a crowd of people and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The sovereign electing love and choice of the Father was not in any way contradictory to the free offer of the gospel in the mind of Jesus. And if we are going to follow Jesus, then we need to follow him here. And so what I'm saying is we, we, we must be Bible Christians, friends, who do not seek to squeeze God into our own limited capacities. We must let God be God. And maybe there's another note of application here because, you know, if we're thinking about broader evangelicalism, perhaps some of the tension is with election. And I think in a Reformed church, for some of us, the tension is with the free offer, the sincere free offer. Because we have this commitment to the doctrine of election and because we have gotten warped in our thinking, there is this sneaking suspicion in our hearts when we hear God sincerely desires the salvation of all people. Dear friends, when, when God says, turn from your wicked ways and live, he's not playing games with you. 
He's not being insincere. He's, he's not speaking, uh, you know, outwardly, uh, but, but in fact, he, he only means it for a select few. Yeah, maybe this isn't the best way of, of thinking about it, but I, I, th- I think we need to avoid this idea that ends us up in saying that there are basically two wills in God. That there is this revealed will, desire all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but then there's this secret will, but actually, and those two things are intention. I think maybe you have a better way of speaking about it, but at least the way that I speak about it and express, trying to express this, my own limited puny mind is instead of saying there are two wills in God, which would be a serious error, is to say that there are two ways of God willing. We need to allow the truth of God, therefore, to take us out of our comfort zones. We need to let God be God. There are things about God that we cannot even begin to understand. And it is our folly to stand in judgment over God and say, well, if I can't reconcile this in my mind, it must not be true. Instead, what what should we do? I think we should say as Bible-believing Christians, if this is the revealed will of God, let us rest in the inscrutable ways of our God and be satisfied with that and learn humility. Because when God says, I do not desire the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live, he's not playing word games with us. And so this truth about God, it should should humble us. And third, it should fill our hearts with gratitude. Now, why do I say that? I haven't offended enough people yet. It's because we're vile and wretched. That's why it should fill our hearts with gratitude. Maybe you think that's a tremendous overstatement, and I would suggest that it's a colossal understatement. Not only did he send his son, Jesus, to seek and to save the lost, but here's the amazing thing I want you to see from Ezekiel 33, that God personally pleads with each one of us to be saved. Are you not blown away by that when you think about it, that God is the one who, if you are a Christian, called you into fellowship with his son. He he called you out of darkness and into the light of his glorious grace. It wasn't the minister or your friend or your family member or your co-worker. Yes, God was working through them, but it was God himself speaking words of life to you. Our God personally pleads with wicked sinners, calling them to turn from their wicked ways and live. I wonder if you remember... uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, the sermon, famous sermon at, at uh, Pentecost. And uh, Peter says to the people, the crowd, after they're cut to the heart, what should we do? And Peter says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. 
Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Hear that? Peter, God making his appeal through Peter. Turn, turn, believe, embrace Christ and live. What what an amazing thing if, if someone asks you this. I would love to hear this answer to the question, how, how, how were you brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? There are lots of ways we can answer that question, but wouldn't it be something if someone immediately responded to you and say, God personally pled with me and called me to turn from my sins and invited me into fellowship with his son. He summoned me sovereignly into fellowship with his son because the reality is we do not know our need for the Lord Jesus Christ until God awakens us to that need. We don't know that we are thirsty for living waters until we know we're thirsty. We don't know how hungry we are until God awakens us to that reality and through the gospel God declares to us Here is my son, and he has in himself everything you need. There's one more thing I want us to think about in light of these passages. And it's simply this, my friends. If this is what God is like, then surely this is what we should be like. We we are called to be imitators of God, are we not? As, As his beloved children. You know, this speaks for sure to to pastors uh, that we we are to proclaim Christ freely, indiscriminately, with urgency. That's why a sermon should never be a mere transfer of information from one mind to another. Preaching is the truth of God aimed at human hearts, dear friends. But this speaks to all of us because when we bear witness to Jesus Christ, as we are all in some capacity called to do, people need to hear from us that God loves this world. Full stop. That God wants all people to turn from their sins and to live. But maybe, maybe you, you're asking another question. How, how, can I ever, how can I ever be like this as a, as a friend, a family member, a co-worker, Neighbor, how can I begin to convey the personal pleading of God with men and women? I think to answer that question, you need to ask yourself another question. What makes God like this? What what leads God to say to people, turn, turn from your wicked ways and live? What, What leads Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, to say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you to myself. It's love. It's it's the love of God for this broken, sinful, fallen world that drew out from him his personal, passionate, sincere pleading with sinners. Uh, The story is told of uh, William Chalmers Burns, a friend of someone more familiar to many of us, Robert Murray McShane. So that gives you a little bit of context. We're 
back in the 19th century, somewhere in the 1830s, and William Chalmers Burns was walking along the busy streets of, of Glasgow, and his mother saw him on the busy street suddenly shoot into an alley. And he had no reason to go into that alley, so she was wondering why he did that. And later she kept, caught up with him, and she saw that he, he looked distressed. And so his mother, his mother asked him, what's, what's troubling you? And why did you go into that, disappear into that alley earlier when I saw you? And William looked at his mother and said, Oh, mother, as I saw thousands upon thousands of souls going to and fro, wandering into a lost eternity, I couldn't but get away for a moment and plead on their behalf before God. What made William Chalmers Burns do that? It was love. Love that reflects the love of our Heavenly Father. And I don't know about you, dear friends, but I have to confess to my own shame that when I am out in public, that kind of concern is often far, far too removed from me. Maybe some of you are here today and you need to hear God desires your salvation. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God desires your salvation. Maybe, maybe you have questions. Maybe your mind is tied up in all sorts of knots. Dear friends, our God can untie those knots. And let's cut through all of that for a moment and just hear the loud and clear message of the Bible in the Old and New Testament. God desires your salvation. He desires that you would turn from your sin and come to a knowledge of the truth as it is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. And even more than that, he has given us the promise in his word that whosoever comes to the Lord Jesus, he will never, ever cast out. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your personal pleading with each one of us to turn from our wicked ways and to find life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that it would not be the voice of a mere man that we hear speaking to us, but that through this uh, broken vessel, we would hear you making your appeal to each and every one of us to turn and to live. And for those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you please work by your spirit so that we reflect your love in the way that we love others around us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.